Hello and welcome to Coronavirus The Whole Story, the podcast that brings you the latest news and stories on coronavirus from the UCL community. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and your host on this very special project, which I'm delighted to say has just been honoured with an award. Well, it's you, our loyal listeners, that have made it popular, so consider yourselves duly congratulated. Thank you. And you can listen to all of our previous episodes right from our very first one, which is all about intensive care, on the UCL Minds website. This week, well, it's all about the economy. I'm joined by an economist and, intriguingly, a microbiologist to discuss how we might get the economy moving again as lockdown eases. So first up, Professor Wendy Carlin, a professor of economics here at UCL and a research fellow of the Centre for Economic Policy Research. Wendy studies macroeconomics and, amongst many other things, the economics of change and serves, and I think this is terribly grown up, on the expert advisory panel of the UK's Office for Budget Responsibility, a big responsibility. My second guest is Dr. Celia Calcott, who is UCL's Vice Provost in Innovation and Enterprise. This means that she leads on UCL's Innovation and Enterprise Strategy, which is designed to foster innovation, enterprise and entrepreneurship at UCL. Celia's got a research background in microbiology and she's worked in many different sectors from academia to pharmaceuticals to government. So, Wendy... Can you give us an idea of the economic impact of coronavirus on the UK, apart from it's big? It's big, yeah. It's caused an unprecedented decline in economic activity, sort of three, more than three times as big as the global financial crisis, bigger than anything, you know, you have to go back to the 1920s to find this kind of fall in activity. But of course, what's so striking about it is that it has been caused by deliberate government action to stop economic activity uh, in order to get control of the virus. So that makes it a very particular kind of economic contraction or economic interruption. We keep hearing about V-shaped recoveries. That seems something that's now disappeared into the past. But how long are we talking about when we're talking about impact. I mean, it is impact decades in some senses, but in other senses, it's more short term. It's decades. Uh, you could just think back to the financial crisis. We'd only just got back to the, the kind of um, living standards of, of 2008, just before COVID struck. So it, it, even that much smaller crisis had a very long overhang. And it looked as though the economy was actually growing more slowly in the longer term than it had in the run-up to the financial crisis. So these things uh, can have very long-lived effects. Because this is a different kind of crisis, we'd expect it to work out in a different way from the financial crisis. And as far as these letters go, you know, VW, some people call it, uh, some people like saying a swoosh, like a Nike swoosh. And the best one I've heard uh, the other day was that if you've learnt uh, shorthand and you've, you've learnt the symbol for bank, that's what it looks like. So um, you can check it out. And what it basically means is that you have a kind of U and then 
the the trajectory is fairly flat heading back towards where the economy might have been in the absence of the crisis. So this is suggesting that uh, the sort of really rapid V shape, which um, Andy Haldane of the Bank of England's even been talking up quite recently, I think most observers think is very unlikely. And it's been very uneven in impact, hasn't it? I mean, some sectors are completely devastated, uh, you know, aviation, for example, or hospitality, but others are, are not. And the issue is that we in the UK are very much a service economy. Yeah, so that that's exactly right. And to, to think about what, you know, which sectors have been affected, you know, again, the, the answer to the question comes from the virus. And it was those, um, you know, networks, economic networks, where we get gains from trade, from interaction, that where those involved face-to-face interactions, they're the ones that had to be shut down. So that's a kind of just a simple way of, of uh, getting the, the pattern, the sectoral pattern of, uh, of what's been affected. And indeed, the UK has, has been very badly affected. As you say, the UK is is a predominantly service economy. So you think of the the creative service, uh, creative sector, and and so on, which plays um, a part, uh, as well as things like aviation, um, tourism, and so on. So all of that has shut down, and is having the the what we call the multiplier effects on the economy because uh, people in those sectors who are not working. Uh, um, most of them are getting some support, but we see everywhere that savings for those who can still save, savings has gone up. So a really depressed level of economic activity and 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 slow uh, rebound even when restrictions have been lifted. And that I think is a really interesting lesson that we've had from from this crisis, which is that. You, you really have to understand people's behavior and, the, and particularly the role of confidence uh, so that if people don't feel safe, then even if they're allowed to, uh, for example, go and eat in restaurants, they'll choose not to do so. So this makes it very hard to predict the pace at which those activities come back. So the people that actually during lockdown have saved quite a lot of money because probably about a third of the population actually saved money while they were in lockdown. What they're doing with their savings is, is you know, putting them away for a, for a rainy day and not going to spend on, you know, going out for a meal, for instance. Yeah, that's right. And that really highlights the, uh, the role of um, government in a crisis like this. So the government, first of all, steps in as the insurer of last resort and provides income to people who, 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 don't, who don't have income. So the furlough scheme was a, was a good idea as a way of maintaining continuity and relationships between um, uh, workers and firms during, the, during this very strange period. So we've got to think about what the government can do. The government can mobilise savings at times like this and 
keep economic activity ticking over. So that's sort of in the crisis period. But the other side of that is that mobilisation of savings is that the government debt goes up. And I think sometimes uh, people move rather too swiftly to, to worrying about the debt and, and not thinking so much uh, about uh, the constructive role. We need the savings to be mobilised um, in, in a crisis. And as we think about moving out of the, uh, the immediate phase of the crisis, then again, the big problem is how do we, how do we get uh, firms to start investing when confidence is so low? And that's, an, that's a, another situation where the government can step in, mobilise savings and uh, not, not just keep the economy ticking over, but also chart away to hopefully the so-called building back better. So the things like, you know, if there were you know, VAT off home improvements, for instance, that's the kind of thing that would help people go out and and spend. And I wonder how hopeful we should be now that the shops are starting to reopen. I think it's not enough. So I think the government has to create a really clear forward-looking strategy around uh, very clearly oriented towards uh, net zero carbon. So the great thing we need is certainty about what the rules are going to be out into the future. And that's how lots of us are going to make decisions. Say, so just as your example there about, um, uh, for example, home, home insulation, uh, retrofitting homes to make them more comfortable and more energy efficient. We need those kind of things to be incentivized and we need um, for, for all of the actors in the economy, firms and households, to be thinking out to start thinking out into the future, making plans and uh, helping to get uh, the economy moving in that direction. So we need really firm intervention by the government through, through incentives of the kind that you're suggesting through regulation, through being really clear about the strategy going forward. One of the things that we're seeing with coronavirus is the seismic nature of change. So things that would have taken years to to affect have taken weeks. I mean, whether it's, you know, online consultations for the NHS. And I wondered, just to be positive about the future a moment, you know, which sectors you thought would be benefited by coronavirus and i don't just mean you know the likes of, of of zoom and and home delivery no i think you're absolutely right i think that it's been a period of accelerated learning and that can translate into productivity growth uh, of the of the kind that you've suggested and it creates all kinds of new opportunities so if the sort of confidence factor can be instilled if firms entrepreneurs potential entrepreneurs can kind of get over their timidity then what's been revealed by the crisis and the changes in behaviour that we've seen opens up all kinds of opportunities for new businesses, for new activities. So I think it can be very positive. You know, I think we've learnt lots of really interesting things, not just about how to do our jobs, but about what people are like and about who the essential workers are and all, all sorts of elements of a more positive view of how the economy can work better. So I think there's lots of reasons for optimism, but it won't happen just by itself.
Now, you mentioned entrepreneurship. So let me now turn to Celia to get your perspective on the role of UCL in the UK's economic recovery. How can UCL and UCL research help at the front line to mobilise the economy? I think, Vivian, there's lots of ways in which we can. I've been listening to Wendy with real interest in thinking about some of the things within the economy. One of the things that UCL can do is to actually understand some of the consequences of what's been this incredibly dramatic change to how we live and work and how we will not return to that. So one of the things we've been doing is looking at what's happening in different sectors and how UCL research can really engage with this. Wendy, you mentioned, for example, the creative industries. And there's a whole piece there about the loss of live performance, which interestingly is something universities have lost to some extent through the loss of lecturing, at least for now. And what we can do is to think about what we will do, what research we can do to understand what that loss of liveness means. So there are interesting, exciting research that we can do. But there's a very important piece that UCL and many universities around the UK are actually involved in, which is the creation of companies and the supporting of the growth of companies. We do that partly because there are fantastic ideas coming out of universities, partly because there are fantastic people who have those ideas or simply want the opportunity to create enterprises. And actually, that's that role of universities and the creation of companies and then supporting small companies, whether they've come out of the university or not, is a genuinely important part of what a university like UCL does. We have in UCL and across the sector, the most amazingly entrepreneurial students. We have amazing technologies that are going into new companies or being licensed into existing companies. All of these contribute in a generic and a specific way to the economy and its reflation. And that's been a real feature of UCL over the years. I, I remember, because I once upon a time was on the UCL Council, when entrepreneurship started to be part of the options that undergraduates and postgraduates could turn to. And there was a kind of scoffing about it, you know, why would people want to do that? But actually entrepreneurship has really taken off like a train at UCL, hasn't it? It has very much. And we, we as a university, we've looked at this from the perspective of encouraging anybody and everybody to develop an entrepreneurial mindset. And then we've been really focusing on really looking at the quality of some of those incredibly exciting ideas. And these are leading to what within the profession we'd call startups, companies, universities are creating that have come from the students generally, not coming out of UCL supported technologies. And UCL's got a collection of companies that are coming out of our student body and our student programs, examples such as protecting vulnerable people, managing their finances, um, virtual museum experiences with Museumio, uh, social enterprises, for example, helping people who um, from less advantaged backgrounds, understanding what university is about and research in particular. But really importantly, alongside that entrepreneurship program that develops the entrepreneurial mindset in our students, UCL seeing a string of outstanding technologies coming out of our research body, our academics, and making their way into existing companies or new spin-out companies, particularly in the area which is called advanced therapeutics. And some of these spin-out companies are amazingly successful. 
And it takes us to a very interesting piece about the consequence of COVID-19 pandemic and actually about my being a microbiologist as well, in that advanced therapeutics are being absorbed into the pharmaceutical industry, which is a sector that will be transformed and challenged by the pandemic. I think we're going to see some really interesting pivots within the sector as it absorbs the new technologies that have been coming out of universities like UCL and going into companies such as Orchard and Autolus, which are both spin-outs from UCL, and also going into companies like Biomarin, GSK and others. So something we see at UCL is that we've got this approach to the entrepreneurial mindset that we've encouraged through our student programme, and it's leading to a strong flow of startups. That whole approach is being reflected in our staff and a flow of spin-outs and other commercialisation activities, taking technologies into real-world application. I might mention DeepMind at this point, which of course came from UCL. DeepMind is a very good example of what is effectively a startup that has clear links to UCL, but hasn't actually brought in new UCL technologies, so it's not a spin-out, but it is one of our recognised great successes. But then you may have spotted the, the advertising at the railway stations, not that you're seeing it at the moment, of course, for BioBean. Um, which is the coffee logs company and a startup coming out of UCL. It's recycling coffee grounds into coffee logs for burning on your wood burning stove or your coffee ground burning stove. And that's been going very well. Uh, another example is a, a marvellous company called Calgira, which has been looking at how to help people who are vulnerable manage their finances and has had great write ups in places like which. You raised, Viv, an interesting question about where would there be growth in the economy or growth in sectors that would benefit. And we could have a, a really interesting discussion about food. We could also have a really important discussion about government regulation, driving the green economy, and uh, that's incredibly important. But I think one of the areas we'll see where we're seeing quite a lot of growth anyway, uh, which is fintech, and that's going to get some real boosts around online security. So just remind people what we mean by fintech. Financial technology, basically companies that are looking at technologies that will manage elements of our finances in a whole host of different ways. And there's a great body of these companies and the, well, the interest that everybody has in them comes from the opportunities to speed up the way we do financial transactions. I suppose we'd look at PayPal as being a fintech company. There are some very interesting small ones, including ones coming out of UCL, developed by the student, our students, which are thinking about how we do manage our finances, how we shop online or shop remotely in safe and secure ways. There's lots of thinking going on and new startups coming through from UCL. MishiPay, that enables in-store purchasing using your phone as a mobile checkout, no terminal needed, is a good example. Calgira, I've already referred to, is another good example. And there are others as well. But one of the things that is very, very difficult, and we, we saw it in you know, Innovate UK, had to come up with some funding especially for this, but a lot of um, SMEs have really got into trouble because of the economic downturn. So companies that might be indeed very successful. So how can UCL help those companies to weather this particular, well, I was about to say storm, but it's more like a hurricane, isn't it? It's a hurricane that's going to go on for a very long time. And I'm with Wendy on the duration. It will be a long time. One of the key ways in which UCL is engaged with this uh, is that um, we have a specialist team that provides support 
last year, it provided support to about 180 SMEs, London-based SMEs, that have been brought to us by Innovate UK. Innovate UK is a part of the government's funding and investment in research and innovation in the UK. Innovate UK looks at these companies and it looks for companies that are able to scale, new companies that are genuinely growing. And UCL Innovation and Enterprise has a specialist team that supports these companies with advice, guidance, business mentoring, help finding grants. We don't give them money. Crucially, we also bring them to an understanding of some of the some of the technologies and opportunities from UCL. So this specialist team is helping this company develop a relationship with some of the UCL academics. And we help Innovate UK in various ways. Well, for example, we were helping Innovate UK with trade missions. Those are obviously on hold, but there's lots of exploration about how you do a virtual trade mission going on, which will be very interesting. We've also got some interesting stats coming through because of the calls we've taken in the last few weeks from the cohort of companies Innovate UK has passed on to us. We found about half of the companies are in distress, fundamentally with a cash flow problem. Occasionally, some of the companies in distress have been caught in the we were about to go and raise money problem, which is just stuck in the system at the moment. But about half the companies we're talking to can see an opportunity. They've spotted something exciting that they can do. It might mean a pivot, but it might not. But whatever it is, it's something exciting, which will undoubtedly help reflate the economy. And that in turn is really exciting for us. So we're offering help on one side and guidance on the other. And in this context, this team and UCL itself is regarded by Innovate UK as being a really key player absolutely key player in this area of business support for small and scaling companies. We lead for them for London. Quite right too. Quite right too. Uh, uh, one final thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Celia, was about the Global Citizenship Programme, because this is very much about social enterprises. And I think we're seeing a shift in our thinking about business. And if you talk to younger people, social enterprises are far more attractive to them than big business. And is, uh, maybe also uh, uh, Wendy's comment on this, but what do you think is the role for social enterprises at the moment? I think social enterprises are essential. We see quite a few being created through our entrepreneurship programmes. Intersarts UK is a very good example. But I think social enterprise is so important that I've worked with UCLB. UCLB is UCL's technology translation and commercialization company, the company which protects our IP and licenses it into existing companies, as well as creating new UCL spin-outs where there isn't an absorptive capacity to take on our technologies. I've worked with UCLB and with the chief executive to make sure that we create a fund for social enterprises. Um, I absolutely see social enterprise as core I think it's core in several ways. It's core, actually, the concept of social enterprise is core to the DNA of UCL. That's really important. But I also believe it's core to how we're going to see the changes in society. But one of the things we've seen in the pandemic and lockdown is people have set out to support each other. We've had to, actually, and it's been really constructive. Social enterprise is surely going to be one of the tools by which young people and the whole of society develop enterprises and develop ideas. That's certainly where I'm coming from.
Wendy, is, uh, is that your view as well? Do you think we'll see more social enterprises and where will big business go after this? I mean, what's what's it route, its route forward? Well, I think that exactly as Celia said, that we've really learnt something, what something's really come to the fore in the, this crisis. And that's that we can't really think about government policy as just sitting along a one-dimensional axis between government at one side and market at the other side. And in other words, that people have really do have different motivations than material incentives, which is at the market end, or compliance, which is at the government end. And people are motivated by other things like altruism, by duty, as we've seen, by uh, reciprocity, also, of course, by identity. And once we recognise these much uh, this much richer set of motivations, then we realise that we have to think of policy. The way I think of it is in a, a sort of inverted triangle, and we've got we've got this this third pole, which is which which we can think of as something like civil society, and uh, and where social enterprise fits is is really plumb in in the middle there because it's making use of uh, of some. Uh, material incentives and some uh, of competition and, and so on of the market, but also of uh, uh, government regulations and opportunities uh, provided by government. But it's also mobilizing these uh, these civic motivations. And, and they are very present among our students. And I think that they are much more widely present and that we can kind of see coming out of this crisis, maybe, this is we're being very optimistic now, but maybe the emergence of of a new economic policy paradigm to replace neoliberalism. And uh, I think that that really should give us a sense of hope moving forward and that it, it places the university uh, very much at the centre of mobilising, if you like, among our students, these civic motivations. It is an extraordinary moment of pivot and change. I mean, it's a, a, I see so many opportunities. It, it's a, also terrible hardship, but there are so many opportunities to change the way that society and the economy functions. And I want to ask each of you, if briefly you could say, how do you think we can build an economy that's more sustainable and inclusive? Because, Wendy, I, I, I guess that actually there'll be a great temptation when we see this kind of bloodbath of uh, jobs um, to uh, to actually think that you you can't, uh, you have to Im uh, go for job creation and not the things that might make society more helpful. Well, I think we, you know, we definitely need job creation. But the question is, uh, what kind of jobs? And one of the great, again, a great insight from the pandemic has, has been this notion of who are the essential workers? What do we mean by essential work? And I think that the whole uh, nature of work is something that, that we do now have a chance to think, think about and uh, how do we value the kinds of jobs that have been defined in that way? You know, you can see them on a government website, who the essential workers are. And many of them are, are very poorly paid without career structures. And again, I think that's a that's a role for the university in helping to uh, think about the a trajectory to a 
fairer, more sustainable economy in which that kind of work is really valued. So briefly from you, Celia, what would you, how would you build an economy that's more sustainable and inclusive? I mean, you've mentioned social enterprise already. Mm. Anything else? Well, I think I would absolutely recognise what Wendy said, that we've seen inequality that has said that people are essential, but we don't recognise or reward that. So as we move forwards, it's trying to bring a balance between what society needs and what it desires, which are not the same things. I think in that context, we've also got to think really clearly about the things we've learnt about the environment from COVID-19. I would absolutely, and this is a role for government, look to how government thinks about regulatory levers as it, that it can pull to encourage and redress some of these imbalances. But if we don't learn the lessons of the inequalities that have been exposed in the last few months, well, well, I think learning the lessons is the key to building the economy forward. So I really do. Okay, so I often at the end of these podcasts, I very generously hand out a magic wand and I'm going to give you my magic wand and I want you to think of the one change that you think that you would make with your magic wand to move our economy forward. Wendy, how about you? What would you do given your magic wand? My magic wand? Well, I think you'll think it's a strange thing, but I think if we could use the magic wand to enable people to keep well clear of an obsession with government debt and to view the, the, what we need now as government mobilizing savings and helping the economy to pivot towards long-run strategic goals centered on fairness and a net zero transition, then we would achieve a lot. So for Wendy, it's sort of um, ear defenders from those saying debt's a really bad thing. <laughs> but how about you, Celia? Well, I think I would use my magic wand to address the way in which we've allowed work to become the defining achievement that people tend to have, which is something that the pandemic has exposed. But I might, so I'm cheating, and this might be more exciting, use it to try and address the way in which we have not thought through the relationship between work, health, diet, living circumstances. It's going to be a very magic wand to do that. <laughs> but it's very powerful. I have a very powerful magic wand. Fascinating from both of you. Such a good discussion. There could be so, so much more. But I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time. So you've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. Our guests today, and thank you to both of you, were Professor Wendy Carlin and Dr Celia Colcott. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, of course you would. From UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And whilst you're there, why not fill out our survey? This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.